The title of this morning's sermon is Enjoying What We're Given. Enjoying What We're Given. On Sunday mornings, we're in a series on covetousness and contentment. Last week, or actually, was it last week or two weeks ago, we began looking at 1 Timothy 6, and one of the main passages in the New Testament discussing contentment. We're at verse 9, but I want to back up to, brief, to verse 8 briefly to review. So look there at verse 8 with me. It says, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And we talked last week that this says that God expects us to be content with what? Does anyone remember? Huh? With the essentials. God expects us to be content with the essentials. If we are not or we choose not to be content with the essentials, it can lead to considerable problems in our lives, which is what Paul goes on to discuss in verses 9 and 10. We had an elevated view of verses 9 and 10 last week. This morning we're going to look at them more deeply and unpack them. Take a look at verse 9. Those who desire to be rich, which is to say those who are not content with what? The essentials, yep. They fall into temptation. And I would say that this is not worded the way that we would expect. We'd expect it to say that desiring to be rich is the temptation, right? It's an important distinction here. It's not just semantics. We'd expect it to say that desiring to be rich is the temptation. Instead, it says that desiring to be rich leads us into or causes us to fall into many temptations. It's very similar to James 1.14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. <clears throat> and so the question is, why does the desire to be rich lead into temptation? Why does the desire to be rich lead into temptation or temptations? Because when you desire to be rich, then what? You're not going to let anything stand in your way from achieving that goal. There's some number of things, immoral or sinful things, that you're willing to do to have those riches that you covet. And this is why verse 10 also says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And this brings us to part one of lesson one. Loving money, part one, leads to sin. Loving money, part one, leads to sin. When people desire to be rich or they have a love of money, as verse 10 says, they'll do almost anything to get it. Not going to let anything stand between them and the, the riches that they crave, including even sin. Listen to the way the Amplified words verse 10. It says, the love of money... That is the greedy desire for it and the willingness to gain it unethically is a root of all sorts of evil. The love of money can motivate most of the evils on the earth. It is hard to think of any sin that people will not commit to be rich. And if you take just one moment and you reflect on this, I think you'll recognize the truth of it. Many crimes, or it's probably not an overstatement to say most crimes even are motivated by what? Wealth, greed, jealousy, covetousness, or all the above. The love of money, it motivates people to do what? To lie, to cheat, to steal, to gamble, to embezzle, to even murder. Briefly look back at verse 6. It says, godliness with contentment is great gain. People who love money obviously lack contentment. If they were content, they wouldn't love money, but they also lack what? They also lack godliness. And why is that? Why do people who desire to be rich or love money lack godliness? Because their love of money leads them to engage in some amount of ungodliness or sin. People who love money, they've already broken the first two commandments because they have made money an idol 
They have made it a God above the one true God. And so it's really only slightly more compromising to then begin breaking the subsequent commandments after you've already broken the first two, the commandments forbidding lying and stealing and adultery, taking God's name in vain, even murder. And we saw this illustrated in the life of Gehazi. He was willing to break how many different commandments to get the money that he wanted from Naaman. Balaam is another example. How many sins was he willing to commit? I mean, he was, he was willing to go against the plain, expressed will of God to get the money that Balak was offering. Think about Achan. We talked about him just briefly in Joshua. We didn't turn there, but you can see the number of sins that Achan was willing to commit because of his love for money. And in each of these cases, the love for money led to these other sins in their lives. Consider this verse, Proverbs fifteen twenty seven. He who is greedy for gain, or he who loves money, troubles his own house. One more time. He who is greedy for gain, or he who loves money, troubles his own house. Why would it say that? There are multiple reasons. First, as we've been discussing, people sin to get what they want, and if people are greedy and they're going to sin, sin never affects just two. The sinner, there's always ramifications or consequences for individuals, typically those closest to the sinner, So if you have a man who's the head of his household and he sins or he's greedy or covetous, he is going to plague his own household as he sins to get that money and they're all negatively affected by it. Second, the greedy person troubles his house because his pursuit of wealth is going to cause him to neglect those closest to him. Just think for a moment. How many marriages have been ruined because of a gentleman who just wants that next promotion? How many children have been neglected while some man puts in too many hours at work so that he can have just a little bit more money? How many marriages have been lost because of some job? You know, how many wives have been made to feel like second place or put on the back burner? And that's because often of this love for money or greediness on a husband's part. Third, greedy people trouble their houses because they fight over money. How many families have been destroyed How many families have been destroyed when someone passes away? They should be grieving, but instead they're fighting over what? The will. How many families destroyed? Someone passes away. The relatives fight over that inheritance. And why does this happen? It happens because people love money more than they love their family members. A lawyer will tell you where there is a will, there is what? Relatives. (laughs) it's comical but it's true where there's a will there are relatives fighting over where that money is going to go willing to throw away relationships with those closest to them just to have a little bit more money this next part which is particularly interesting verse 9 says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and then it says into a snare into many senseless or foolish and harmful desires, snare means trap, and this brings us to the next part, lesson, uh, part, uh, part two, loving money, part two is a trap. Loving money is a trap. This almost sounds like the previous part about heading into temptation, but it's different. The trap is that people love money, and they think that when they get more money that it's going to do what? any number of things, satisfy them, solve their problems. But instead, as the verse states, it creates what? Additional desires. 
or additional lusts. And that is the trap. This goes back to that saltwater analogy that we talked about a few weeks ago, that people covet money and they think that getting it is going to satisfy them, and all it does is create a greater appetite for more money. So instead of finding contentment, interestingly, when people crave money and get it, it creates greater discontent, discontentment for them. That's the trap. It says many of these desires that it creates, it says they're senseless and they're harmful. And this is one of the other ways that loving money is a snare or it's a trap. People expect money to do something for them, something positive. They expect it to solve some number of problems or issues in their lives, but instead pursuing it causes or creates senseless and harmful desires. And here's what I mean. We live in a world that treats money like it's a what? Like it's a God. If you think about it, people's relationship with money, if you're a believer, is like your relationship with God. Let me say that one more time. If you are a believer and you look at people's relationship with money, they treat money the way you treat God. Or they look to money the way that you look to God. People love it. They sacrifice for it. They think that it can do anything for them. Their minds are filled with thoughts about it. They can't stop being controlled by it. Their lives controlled by it and the thought of having more of it. And then they get it and they experience this greater sense of security. And so what faith is for believers, money often is for unbelievers. They view money the way that they should view God. They see money as the solution to almost every problem. And that is the trap because money does not do what people expect. This could have been very long. I'm going to make this fairly short. And I want to invite you to just consider this. I had a lot of material to get through, so I can't give this the attention I'd like. But as you read through Scripture, what you're going to see is this. We have talked about money being amoral. One, so it's not immoral or sinful in and of itself. But one of the things that Scripture often communicates is not what money can do for you, but what money can't do for you. And so one more time, if you look for this as you read Scripture, you will often see verses discussing money's inability to do things for you. It cannot buy peace, for example. Proverbs 15, 16, and 17. Better is a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner where herbs and love is than a fatted calf, which is to say where wealth is with hatred. So there's no amount of money that can purchase what for us? Peace or harmony within homes. Money cannot buy a good name. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. And so to connect the dots, this is the trap. The trap is that people think money can do these wonderful positive things for them, but it just can't. There's another way that loving money is a trap. Look at the rest of verse 9. It says it, it, says it plunges people into ruin and destruction. And so imagine that. I mean, that's the trap. People are pursuing money, thinking it's going to do something great for them. Scripture says that it just plunges them into ruin and destruction. And those words are synonymous. Paul says the same thing twice, ruin and destruction, to really drive that, that point home to us about the devastating consequences of loving money. And this brings us to part three. Loving money, part three, is destructive. If you happen to miss the word ruin, then you see it again when it says destruction. It's very destructive. The Greek word for plunge, it's bothizo, and it means to plunge into the deep or to sink or to drown, which is how it's translated in the King James and in the New King James. 
There's only one other place where this word for plunge occurs. It's in Luke 5, 7. You don't have to turn there. But do you remember when Jesus gave them the miraculous catch of fish? They had not been able to catch anything all night. Tells them to put their nets over the other side. And then they catch so many fish that what happens? They start sinking. They sink, Luke 5, 7, they signal their partners to the other boat to come and help them. They came, filled the both boats with fish so that they began to sink. That's the same word for plunge. And so you say, well, what's the relationship here? Or what's the imagery that's being painted for us? It's this. You've got a covetous person who's drowning under the weight of their covetousness or their love for money. The form of the Greek word for bethesio or for plunge, it's a continual action. And so what it means is they face continual temptation. They continue to be trapped. They continue to fall into a snare as long as they have that love for money. So it's just not a one-time thing. It's something that goes on throughout their lives as long as this sin is present. And so the question is, what sort of ruin and destruction? I've tried to get through, you might not know this, but I'm trying to get through verses more quickly. Um, You kind of look and say, you're only getting through one or two most sermons. I know, I know, but I'm trying to go more quickly. And one of the steps that I've taken to get through more verses is to look at less commentaries. I've limited myself to four commentaries per passage, unless I happen to see something where there's considerable disagreement among, among commentators, and then I'll look into uh, a few more commentaries. And what I can tell you about this when, is that commentators are kind of all over the place. There's two camps when it talks about ruin and destruction, because are we talking about ruin and destruction in this life or the next life? Does love of money cause ruin and destruction in this life or the next life? And you can find commentators that say this. Yes. That's it. It's both. It is both. The love of money causes ruin and destruction in this life and in the next life. I was actually surprised to see some number of commentators who just said, no, the next life. This is only referring to the next life. Or they said just this life. It's this life and the next life. And we know that because we've studied some individuals and seen how their covetousness ruined this life for them. Gehazi, Achan, Balaam, earthly lives completely ruined, completely destroyed by their love of money, but there's also eternal consequences. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says that who will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's, it's, it's interesting. Actually, let me back up a little bit. Imagine I didn't ask you that yet, Okay. <laughs> You're kind of reading through that passage when it's talking about the individuals that will not inherit the kingdom of God, and it's like murderers, and are you, are you okay with that? You're, you're like, yep, we got it. I got it. Murderers not inherit the kingdom of God. Adulterers. And then it kind of goes on, and then it says coveters. It says liars, and you get kind of uncomfortable then because you know you're a liar and you know that you've coveted. And that's what it says, that coveters will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's how terrible the sin of loving money is, it can even prevent people from going to heaven. We have an example in scripture. We have an example. There are not a lot of people shown in the next life in scripture. The, the window that scripture gives us largely ends with the conclusion of this life. But we actually get to see two people in the next life. One of them is in torment. And who's that? The rich man. The rich man. So we even get to see a rich person or someone who had a love for money in this place of torment. If you look at Paul's words in verse 10, you can, or think about the rich man. 
Do you remember the rich young ruler that Jesus is speaking to? And Jesus asks him to choose, and he walks away. He cannot leave his money. And that's interesting because that man looks fairly good. He comes to Jesus with these good questions about inheriting eternal life. He doesn't look like all the religious leaders trying to trap him. He's sincere. He bows before him. And you've got an individual who's not going to heaven, not because of his murder, not because of his adultery, but because of his love for money. Look at verse 10, and you can see described how this happens. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some, and here's the important part, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And that's exactly what happened with the rich rich young ruler, but exactly what happens with many other people. We're saved by grace through faith. If you wander from the faith, there is no other way to be saved. If you abandon the one way that God has given or you walk away from the faith, then you can't be saved any other way. Let me explain this imagery Faith is being pictured as a path. And when people walk off the path, they find themselves in thorn bushes. And that's why there's that language of them being pierced, piercing themselves with many pangs, or some translations say sorrows, and it's referring to them suffering because of their love for money, all of the pain that it causes them. And so we really need to appreciate that the love of money causes ruin and destruction in this life and the next life. There's one more place in Scripture that clearly talks about loving money, and I want to look at it. We will not turn back to 1 Timothy. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5, or Ecclesiastes 5. Turn to Ecclesiastes 5. Toward the end of the poetical books, find Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes is pretty small. Look for Psalms, then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. You have these two passages, one New Testament, one Old Testament, discussing loving money. And I wanted to look at a few verses here in Ecclesiastes 5. As you probably know, the theme of Ecclesiastes is what? If you're just going to give me one word to summarize the book, what is it? Vanity. That's right, vanity. The theme of the book is vanity or futility of this life. And this is important. It's not the vanity or futility of this life all the time or for everyone. It is the vanity or futility of this life for those who live it, what? Apart from God live this life separate. I mean, we know, I think we know that, right? We know that this life is not vain when it is lived in relationship with the Lord. But that's not what Solomon talks about. He talks about the vanity or futility for those who live separate from God. The following verses are specifically about the futility of wealth or the futility of riches when riches or wealth are experienced independent of God. Or separate from the Lord himself. Or here's another way to say it. These verses are about experiencing the gifts separate from the giver. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And so hopefully you see the relationship to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6.10 
We've got, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And then Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. We've talked about this many times before. Don't want to spend much more time on this verse because it has been such a theme. You can summarize this verse simply by saying what? Money doesn't satisfy. And getting more of it leaves you even more unsatisfied. There will never be enough, which is why it's vanity or futile. Look at the first part of verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. We tend to think that getting money solves problems, but this is about money causing problems. And it brings us to part four. Lesson one, loving money part four brings people for the wrong reasons. Loving money part four brings people for the wrong reasons. Solomon takes a little different approach than Paul takes in 1 Timothy 6. God used Paul to speak about the spiritual problems associated with loving money. Solomon largely talks about the physical problems or consequences of loving money. And this is one of them, that when goods or when riches increase, they increase who eat them. Which is to say when you're rich, lots of people start showing up. (laughs) Some of them are friends, some of them are relatives, but they're not showing up because they love you and want to spend time with you. They're showing up because they want your money. They want to eat it. They want to take advantage of you. They want to have your food. They want to use your stuff. They want to enjoy your hospitality. Individuals who you haven't heard anything from, if you were to become rich, suddenly they show up on your doorstep, and now they want to be best friends with you. Listen to this verse, Proverbs 19.6. Many entreat the favor of the nobility, and every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. In other words, people love you when what? When you're rich, or you have something to give them, or, they have, or you have something that they want. When it says they increase who eat them, there are a lot of different people that can show up. And one of the other people, or one of the other, or organization, you might say, that can show up is the government. (laughs) Because as soon as you have more money, it could be the IRS. I'm serious. It sounds comical, but it's true. You have more money, and then the government wants more money from you. The more you have, the more other people want to take it from you. How many people sue poor people? Nobody sues poor people. I was listening to this gentleman, and he was talking about this panel of rich people that he was watching be interviewed, and he discussed all of these rich people, and interestingly, the number not of security guards they needed for their homes, but the number of lawyers they needed because of all of the people who were trying to get their money. So become rich and watch how many lawyers you need. Guess who else shows up? criminals because who doesn't get robbed poor people don't get robbed thieves don't break into shacks do they but they break into mansions how many poor people live in fear of being kidnapped now this is biblical i'm mentioning this because of what scripture says greater riches increases physical danger proverbs 13 8 the ransom of a man's life is his health 
but a poor man hears no threat. In other words, rich people are going to have the money that they need to pay the ransom when they're kidnapped. But poor people don't even hear what? A whisper of being kidnapped. Because nobody wants to kidnap them because they know that they don't have any money. The major point, though, is that to have more puts you at greater risk of physical danger, physical threat. Poor people don't even hear a whisper about that. Look at the rest of verse 11. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So Solomon asked this good question. He, we didn't look at it, but in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, he discusses some of the futility of wealth. He continues with that here. And then he reaches this point where he kind of says, you know what, there's all these problems associated with riches. Is there any advantage, any advantage for the person who's rich? And he pretty much says, sadly, not much. All you can do with your stuff is what? You can look at it. You get your friends together and you say what? Hey, look at my new car. Look at my new golf clubs. Look at my new shotgun. Look at my new house. Henry Ford said, you can only wear one pair of pants at a time and look at the rest. And there's a lot of truth in that. So you get all this stuff, but then there's that point in your life where you realize this isn't doing anything for me. It's actually somewhat problematic. My problem isn't that I need more. My problem is I need to get rid of some of it. I have too much of it. And it gets worse. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, this verse looks like it's saying rich people don't sleep because they eat too much. And then they have an upset stomach that keeps them awake. I think we can conclude, though, that Solomon is discussing something physically to make a spiritual point. And so the question is, what is he trying to communicate to us spiritually? And the point is this. The man who works hard sleeps well, whether what? Whether he's eaten very much or not, right? But the rich man... He's filled, but he's not so much filled with food. What is it that's keeping him awake? He's filled with anxiety. The absence of peace is what's keeping him awake. And so this is interesting. This isn't a joke. The Bible tells you how to sleep well at night. If you want to sleep well, what do you need to do? Work hard. That's what it says. Great, great lesson to apply to our lives and to share with our children. If they have trouble sleeping, And they don't want to go to bed. When you tell them to go to bed, say, you didn't work hard enough today. (laughs) We need to give you more chores or we need to have you be busier. You either sat around too much or you were too lazy. And that's why you've gotten out of your room and you're telling us that you can't fall asleep. And so tomorrow, what we need to do to help you sleep well is to make you work harder and then take your child to Ecclesiastes 5 here and show them this verse. And then the next time that your child wants to come in another room because they say they won't sleep, at least they'll just stay in their bed so they don't have to work harder, right? So you won't have to worry about them coming out. So here's what's interesting about this. The common laborer, that maybe the very modest laborer, is able to sleep considerably better than the common rich person. 
And this brings us to part five. Loving money, part five, produces anxiety. Loving money, part five, produces anxiety. Again, we're having to, it's, it's almost a paradigm shift. The world so deceives us regarding money. You have to, like in the language of Romans 12, you've got to have your mind transformed in its thinking because the world wants to convince us that money has all these solutions or these answers for us. But when you read scripture, you see many problems associated with wealth. Few things are as enjoyable or pleasant as a good night's sleep. And, peop- and the reason I mention the paradigm shift is people tend to think that if you have a lot of money, then you're going to be able to sleep well. You can look at it a hundred times, and the Bible says the opposite of that. That money does not provide the security that's going to allow people to sleep at night. People who love money are actually prevented from sleeping. Possessing wealth, it is no guarantee that your nerves are going to be calm. It is no guarantee that you're going to sleep soundly simply because there is an amount of anxiety associated with having wealth. People end up worrying, and they they ask these questions. They say, do I have enough? How many people lay awake at night, especially after some economic downturns, saying, I am totally upside down in my house? Why did I buy this house that I cannot afford? I didn't have the money for this. I thought it was a great thing when when the bank gave me hundreds of thousands of dollars that I didn't have so that I could purchase this, and now I'm in this big expensive house and it's keeping me awake at night. Why did I buy that extra car? I cannot afford the mortgage payments on my house. I cannot afford the extra payments on this other vehicle. Why did I buy that big flat screen television? They had this payment plan that looked so good, it was only going to be you know, 40 or 50 or $60 per month, but then when you add that to all of the other payments that I'm making each month, I can't afford it. It's giving me nightmares. Did I really need that extra set of, and then fill in the blank with whatever it is that, that was purchased? And so there's all this anxiety. All right. It's particularly interesting to be preparing this sermon considering what is coming up this Friday. <laughs> oh, come on. Is John Maddow the only person that knows? What's coming up this Friday? Why is it black? Why is it black? <laughs> I'll tell you why I think it's black, because it plunges people into the darkness of more debt and covetousness. (laughs) I thought about talking about the darkness of man's covetous heart. Katie said that language was a little bit too strong, but I just found another way to slip it in there anyway. So just do me two favors when this Friday rolls around. Two favors as your pastor, please, Woodland Christian Church. Don't buy anything you don't have the money for. And I'm not joking. When this Friday rolls around, do not look and say, oh, this looks like such a good deal. Oh, the price is so much cheaper than it was two months ago or will be next year. If you don't have the money for it, it doesn't matter how cheap it looks, you can't afford it. It, is, it might be a good deal for someone else. It is not a good deal for you. If you don't have the money for it, if it's going to introduce a debt into your life or some payment plan, this is not a good deal for you. The second thing that I want you to remember when you're looking at buying that is all you can do is look at it. And I don't mean in the store, I mean when you get it home. You're going to do the same thing with it in your home that you did with it in the store. Sit there and look at it. 
So just remember that when you're considering those purchases, the Bible says all you can do with this is look at it. Check out verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. This is pretty odd, isn't it? This is talking about individuals keeping wealth, but more than likely possessions, to their own detriment or to their own hurt. Look where it says, riches were kept by the owner to his own hurt. This is referring to hoarding, which is how it's translated in some Bibles. I think the NIV, NLT, and NASB. And this brings us to part six. Loving money, part six, produces hoarding. Loving money, part six, produces hoarding. Remember, I talked earlier that we can, in our society, we are promised typically that we have too much stuff. It isn't that we need more. It's that we need to get rid of some of what we have. And one of the problems is when people have an amount and they should get rid of it, instead they just want to keep it. But they don't just keep that. They keep bringing in more stuff. They're adding more stuff to their home and to their closets and then to their storage. Remember we talked a few weeks ago that if you want to start a great business, open up storage lockers because the number of people that are storing stuff, just saving, just spending money every month. And, and then this is really interesting. We're talking about possessions and looking at them. Some people have so much possessions they can't even look at them because it's locked up. Their possessions are in storage containers. And so this is talking about hoarding, and it says it's to the owner's own detriment, or the person is hurting himself or herself because of all the stuff that they own. Has anyone ever seen the television show Hoarders before? <laughs> it's troubling. It is troubling, all the problems that are caused in people's lives. I mean, you would think, how many problems can really be caused by someone hoarding? I mean, people's lives literally ruin their relationships, ruined with people. People who can't even make it through their house. They have to have little paths among all the piles of stuff that they, that they own. And they can't even look at it because so much of it's down at the bottom of these piles. And so <clears throat> if you have a lot of stuff, you know how true this is, that your stuff starts causing you problems as you hoard it. The next three verses, they're going to make a point that we have made. I even entertained skipping them, but I still wanted to read through them because I think there's a little bit of new material. But for the most part, the next three verses are making a point that we have discussed a number of times before, so I don't want to repeat myself. But I do want you to see the Scripture repeats itself so you can understand that this is an important point that God wants to drive home. I'm going to give you the lesson first so that you can look for this truth as we move through the verses. So this brings us to lesson one, part seven, loving money is vain. Loving money is vain, which is the point of these three verses. And the reason that these verses say that money is vain, or loving money is vain, is because the money you love ends up disappearing. You can't keep it. You can't keep it in this life at times, and you definitely can't take it with you into the next life. Verse 14, he says those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So this is referring to people losing wealth because of bad business ventures, but really it could be any misfortune. It could be a fire, it could be an accident, it could be, uh, it could be a car accident, it could be a physical accident, the medical bills that are piling up, and then people find themselves right back where they were before, and it says that they have what? They have nothing in their hands. 
just like they didn't have anything in their hands previously. And it says that if you're a parent, now you don't have anything that you can pass along to your children. Proverbs 27, 24, riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations? So wealthy people, they you know, store up some amount of wealth, they want to be able to pass it along to their children. And there's that stress or that, there's that anxiety of wondering whether they're going to be able to do that. But if you don't have a lot of wealth, then you don't have this concern. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to be, a pass, be able to pass along millions of dollars to your, to your children. Look at verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? We have talked about this so much, the point that when you leave this life, you don't take anything with you, that you could almost read this verse and say, is is God saying the same thing again that we've already talked about so many times? And he is. He's making this point again, a constant reminder to us that everything physically we accumulate in this life will not go with us into the next life. If you don't, so in other words, if you don't lose your riches through some bad business venture or some other misfortune, as the previous verses talked about, you are going to lose them when you take that last breath, since they don't go with you. And so Solomon says that's why there's no gain. I mean, if you can look in the verse, he says there's no gain. It is toiling or it is grasping for the wind simply because we leave it all behind and that's why it's vain or futile. The next verse, verse 17, this is a very important verse. You might highlight it, circle it, do not forget this verse. Moreover, all his days he, he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. And I don't know if we could see a more dismal or depressing description of someone in this life. And this brings us to lesson two. In this life, little is part one, worse than having gifts you can't enjoy. In this life, little is part one, worse than having gifts you can't enjoy. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this. And when my dad was receiving his radiation, they told him that it was going to be very painful for him to be able to swallow. And so they gave him this feeding tube, which is pretty common for anyone in his situation. So dad has this feeding tube, and I had some familiarity with the food that they were giving him that was being put in this feeding tube. And something occurred to me. It would not have mattered what the food was. It, it, could, have been, it could have been the most expensive, delicious, fanciest, lavish food, you know, cooked by the most amazing chefs. And when it went in that food in, feeding tube, it was no different than the plainest, blandest food that anyone could cook because of what reason? Can't taste it. You can't taste it. Or another way to say it would be, there's just no way for my dad to be able to enjoy it. And the reason I'm saying this is because this is what life looks like for people who don't know God. That is what life looks like for people who don't know God. They cannot enjoy the gifts that he gives them. And there's, what's, there's two, let me just briefly distinguish two types of grace. The grace we're most familiar with or that is most important to us is saving grace, the grace that saves your soul and allows you to spend eternity with the Lord, have your sins forgiven. But there's also what's known as common grace, 
which is the grace that allows the sun or the rain to fall on the believer and the unbeliever alike. In other words, there are plenty of God-hating, evil, blasphemous people who experience much of God's grace in this life, or they experience many gifts from him. And the moment that you think that that looks very unfair, you need to remember that they do not have the peace to enjoy it. They don't know the Lord. They don't know the giver, so they cannot enjoy the gifts themselves. And that's the man in verse 17. That is the man in verse 17. This is a Christless man. Look at what it says about him. He eats in darkness. Perhaps it's discussing the absence of physical light. I think the bigger picture, though, is the metaphor, the gloom, the spiritual darkness, the gloom of his life, that he doesn't know the Lord. What has has not shined on him? The light of the gospel. Christ hasn't shined on him. So he, he might sit in physical darkness, but the worst reality for him is the spiritual darkness that he finds himself in. He experiences as a result much vexation or much frustration. He's sick. He's angry. He is a miserable person despite all of his riches, all of his wealth, all of his possessions, and his terrible existence reveals his inability to enjoy the gifts that God has given him. And that is why we see many rich people who are miserable, who have unspeakably terrible depression, expecting that the, the wealth that they have was going to bring them some amount of peace. And I mean, there's just a reason that Romans 5 talks about being reconciled to God. You're then at peace with God. And once you have, and once you're at peace with God in Romans 5, you can then experience the peace from God that he gives of Philippians 4 that surpasses all understanding. But until you're reconciled to God in Romans 5, you cannot experience the peace from God in Philippians 4. And do you know what that means? That means no matter what you get, no matter how much money you have, no matter what your possessions are, you cannot enjoy them. Do me a favor and look one chapter to the right of Ecclesiastes 6. Look at Ecclesiastes 6, verse 1. Solomon says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and this evil lies heavy on mankind. What would you expect this evil to be? Murder, adultery, homosexuality, maybe child sacrifice? I mean, we're talking evil here. Look what he says in verse 2. This is the evil. A man to whom God gives wealth, and God gives him possessions, and God gives him honor, So this man lacks nothing of all that he desires. He has everything he wants. He has everything a man could want. But notice this, yet God does not give him power to enjoy it. A stranger enjoys it. This is vanity. This is a grievous evil. Could anything, think about this, Could anything be worse than having 
everything you want, but God not giving you the power to enjoy it. I don't think there could be anything in this life that would be more miserable than that. Because at least the person that doesn't have can work for or long for. But the person that has it, I mean, what would be more miserable than getting it, expecting all of the joy and satisfaction that comes with it, and then being empty, experiencing vanity or futility after you've gotten everything, you've climbed the mountain, you know, you've gotten to the top, and then you realize that it is totally futile, you know, a horrible view once you get up there. Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children, he lives many years so that the days of his years are many. So he's got a hundred children, an unimaginable blessing, sign of prosperity in the ancient world. He lives many years. He's got a long life too. But it says his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. He doesn't enjoy them. He's still covetous. He's not content It says he has no burial. And then Solomon's observation about this person, a stillborn child is better off than this person, which means what? It would be better for that person not to even be born than to experience this dismal existence, going through this life, being discontent and miserable. And if you want, I entertained, I tried to be very self-controlled, my studying this week, I didn't want to spend another week in Ecclesiastes. I wanted to dig out some more truths from this chapter. But the rest of Ecclesiastes 6 goes on to make this same point, or, or it does this. The rest of Ecclesiastes continues to describe a person who has everything and is miserable. And those just don't seem to go together, do they? The person who has everything and is absolutely unsatisfied with them. Read, the, read chapter 6 as a family. Read Ecclesiastes 6 as a family. Or read it by yourself. Read it with your spouse. Just take in the, the tremendous truth contained in this account that I think is so foreign, uh, so unknown to the rest of the world. And so the question is this then. Why have this lengthy discussion if we're not going to talk about the solution? And the question is this. How do we enjoy the possessions that we have? How can we enjoy the gifts that we have been given? And the answer is in chapter 5, if you want to look back there, in verses 18 to 20. Before you start reading the verses, let me explain them to you. Ecclesiastes 5, 12 to 17, and then Ecclesiastes 6, most of the whole chapter, are about the misery of a person who cannot enjoy his riches. So you've got these two passages, Ecclesiastes 5, 12 to 17, all of chapter 6, about the person who's miserable despite all the riches and wealth he has. And then sandwiched right in between those is verses 18 to 20, which tells us how we can enjoy the gifts that God has given us. Look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink, and to find enjoyment, so the opposite of the man in verse in Ecclesiastes 6 who can't find enjoyment, to find enjoyment in all of the toil 
with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So our lives are short. We don't think about this often, but they are. But there are three things that God says are good and fitting for us during the time that we have. First, experiencing simple blessings, such as what? The verse mentions them. What are the simple blessings to, to enjoy? Eating and drinking. Many people don't understand this. This life is not about lavishness. This life is not about extravagance. This life is not the lifestyles of the rich and famous. This life is about the simple things. That's where true pleasure or blessing is found in the simple things such as eating and drinking, and especially having friends or a church family, brothers and sisters in Christ, to do that with. And we probably do not talk about this enough. People come here and they see all these families and all these children, and they say, well, what if I don't have a family? What if I don't have children with me? I'm not going to fit in. No. If you come here by yourself, if you don't have a spouse or children with you, you need this church more than anyone else because you're the one who needs the family that this church can become to you. And so it's a tragic thing when people will go to church and they'll say, well, I don't have a husband or I don't have a wife or I don't have children, so I shouldn't be here. No, you need to be here more than anyone else because you need to let God give you a family. You need to let God give you brothers and sisters in Christ that can love you and be the family that you didn't come to the church with. Second, it says finding enjoyment in our work. This is a pretty easy one to understand. We just spend a lot of this life working. Sometimes my kids say to me, why do you work so much? And I say, every guy works so much. Everyone works so much. It's much of our lives. And so what's better than being able to find enjoyment or satisfaction in the work that God has called us to? And then the third thing, notice the words God has given us. Being able to view the blessings or view the gifts that God has given us as blessings. Keep this in mind and look at verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Now, up to this point, money has sounded so bad, you could almost ask, are we talking about money or leprosy? I mean, money sounds so bad, it's like, I need, to get, I need to stay as far away from it as possible. I need to yell unclean anytime I see a check or cash. That's not, what's, that's not the point here, because you can see here it says, God has given wealth and possessions. God is the one who gives us wealth. God is the one who gives us possessions. They are gifts from him. They're not evil. And so the point is not that wealth and possessions are bad. The point is it's bad to try to enjoy them apart from God himself. It's bad to try to enjoy the gifts apart from the giver. God actually prevents people from enjoying his gifts apart from him. If you try to enjoy God's gifts apart from him, you look like the man in verse 17, or you look like the man in chapter 6. God makes these people miserable for what reason? So they keep searching. So that they don't find lasting contentment in what? Their wealth or their possessions. They continue looking for it someplace else, and then hopefully they hear the gospel. Hopefully they can be reconciled to God, where true and lasting contentment can be found. But until that point, God never 
and it's truly one of his greatest graces, allows us to experience lasting contentment from any possessions or any amount of wealth. And aren't you just thankful that that is the case? Aren't you thankful that God doesn't allow a rich person to remain content in their unregenerate state just because of how many possessions they have? So no, God puts this deep discontentment in them. So they continue searching, continue looking until they come to a relationship with him. And at the end of the verse, look at the words, this is the gift of God. It's important to understand this correctly. It says, this is the gift of God. Wealth and possessions are gifts from God, but that's not the gift that's being referred to at the end of the verse. The gift he's referring to is the gift of being able to enjoy the gifts God's given you. The gift being referred to at the end of the verse is the gift of being able to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. Lesson two, in this life little is, part two, better than having gifts you can enjoy. Lesson two, in this life little is better than having gifts you can enjoy. If you read verse 19 one more time with me, notice that the gift is being able to enjoy the gifts that God gives us. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. That is the gift to be able to enjoy all that God's given us the power or ability for three important things in life. First, notice it says enjoying the wealth and possessions he's given us. Second, do you see right there where it says accepting our law in life? Accepting our law in life? If you write in your Bible, you can circle those words, draw a little line out, and write contentment. Because this is an Old Testament, succinct, concise definition of contentment. Contentment is accepting your law in life being content with what God has given you. And then third, it says rejoicing in our toil, which again is enjoying our work. Now to have these three things right here, this is what makes someone truly rich. This is what the truly rich person has. Not the big house, not the fancy car, not the huge bank account. They have the three things discussed in this verse that God gives them gives us the power to enjoy look at the last verse he will not much remember the days of his life because god keeps him occupied with joy in his heart now when it says he will not much remember the days of his life you say well what is that about this has to be interpreted in the context of the book of ecclesiastes which is basically that your life is what vain or miserable (laughs) that's kind of the point If you understand the context of the book, that your life is vain or futile, and so you don't really want to reflect on it too much because there's not that much to celebrate because it's temporary, we're we're just passing through, we're pilgrims, we're we're sojourners, our citizenship is in heaven, that's what where our eyes should be lifted when we notice the vanity or futility of this life. And so when it says, he will not much remember the days of his life, you say, well, why wouldn't we want to remember the, the days of our lives? Because our days are vain. Because our days are futile. Because they're filled with trouble and struggles and trials and things that wouldn't be part of our lives if sin had not been introduced. So listen to the way this is worded in the Amplified. 
He will not often consider the troubled days of his life. So in other words, the person who knows the Lord, God is going to keep him occupied with joy or gladness in his heart or her heart so that we don't reflect on the vanity of this life. When we have a relationship with the Lord, we're so busy enjoying the gifts that he's given us, the joy that he has imputed into our hearts that we don't have time to think about past hurts, past struggles, past vanity, the past futility that has characterized everyone's life up to that point. And just notice this very powerful contrast. In verse 17, you've got the unbeliever. Here is the unbeliever. All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger, despite all the wealth and possessions that he has. In verse 20, you've got the believer. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now, that is quite the difference, isn't it? That is quite, I mean, I don't have to ask for a show of hands. Do you want to be in verse 17 or in verse 20? <laughs> Which one of these verses do you want to be about you? And my hope and prayer is that you can enjoy the gifts God gives you because you know the giver. And you know the giver because you have been reconciled to him through his son. Because according to John 14, 6, there is only one way to know the giver. Nobody goes what? Nobody goes to the Father except that they go to Him through the Son. That is the way to know the giver, to know His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want to conclude with this. We should love the Lord. We should be content with our lot in life and enjoy the gifts God's given us. If we focus on the gifts more than the giver, if we love the gifts more than the giver, then we've committed what? Idolatry. Idolatry. We will not be able to enjoy the gifts. If we accept the gifts, but we covet more, we crave more. According to 1 Timothy 6, 9, we desire to be rich. Or 1 Timothy 6, 10, we love money, then we're guilty of covetousness. And again, we are not going to be able to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. If we hoard the gifts as we talked about, we keep them for ourselves, we're guilty of indulgence or we're guilty of selfishness. And again, we will not be able to enjoy the gifts. But if we submit to God, if we use the gifts that he has given us for his glory, then we can enjoy life and experience the contentment that he provides. Father, we thank you for that wonderful truth. We thank you for the gifts that you give us, the true and greatest gift being your son, Jesus Christ, and the ability through him to be able to enjoy the other gifts that you give us in this life. And so my prayer for this church, for anyone here, especially any children, that you would grant them a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, that they would come to know you as the giver and that the greatest gift you've given is the gift of salvation, the the sacrifice that your son was willing to experience on the cross and make on our behalf. And so we thank you for that. Help us to live in light of this truth or reality, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.